Uh, Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update Fridays here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. As always, good to be with you. And good Erev Shabbos to everyone. Appreciate that. As uh, anybody who travels to Israel regularly, anybody obviously who lives in Israel, listening in Israel, there's a uh, a certain way of life that has uh, uh, become uh, a regular way of life, and that's when you walk into any restaurant or public space, synagogue, etc. Chances are you will be encountered by uh, some member of uh, a security detail, whether it's obvious or not. In some cases, obviously, army, etc. It's obvious. In other cases, it may not be as obvious. Uh, when we first traveled um, uh, to Europe back uh, about four years ago, one of the first impressions I had was uh, I, we, we literally went uh, to the first shul so I could say Kaddish. I was saying Kaddish that year, and uh, the synagogue, a regular synagogue on a regular weekday, was guarded by uh, you know um, by army personnel with you know armed to the teeth, so to speak. And that, as you can attest to, in a certain European uh, cities, is you know quite common. And now we're in the aftermath of what happened in Jersey City, and we think to Poway, and we think to uh, Pittsburgh, of course, and all the victims in the last 18 months, and, and victims, of course, across the country in uh, in episodes that are similar to this and all the other anti-Semitic uh, incidents that are occurring, uh, some reported and some, unfortunately, not reported. And I ask you, Malcolm, are we getting to the point now where um, any identifiably Jewish institution is not only going to have to have its own inner workings when it comes to security, you speak about scan, etc., and different ways that people can secure their synagogues and schools, but are we getting to the point where government officials are going to need uh, to bring the police forces, local police forces, and possibly even, like in countries around the world, uh, army personnel to come and guard these locations? Well, first of all, we all feel the tragedy and identify with the families uh, of those who, who were killed and the, um, you know, a lot to, to examine about how some of the media coverage, and, and especially initially, when they talked about the bodega that was hit and, the, and not identifying any of the victims or what was really happening there. The... Um, um, the tragedy for the Asomim, the orphans, uh, uh, three orphans that are left behind, um, and, of course, the family of the police officer. So that's first thing. Uh, second, the lessons that we derive from every one time something happens is to, to look at how, what steps could have been taken to prevent it, and probably nothing. Uh, when if somebody is hell bent on this kind of an attack, they're going to carry it out. And you saw the the level of weaponry and what they've done, and they may have killed people before the person over the weekend. And the the question that you ask is going to become a reality. It's not going to be the army and and police that are going to be able to do it. They can do some parts of it, but frankly, it's going to take the private resources and that every institution is going to carry a burden, hopefully be assisted by some government funds as we get today for uh, equipment and for uh, security measures. But it's not, it's, it's, uh, it's such a huge undertaking. What they do in Europe uh, is possible because the number of institutions generally are pretty limited. 
And and even there, the security measures are not sufficient, as we have seen uh, too often. Uh, and the laws also are different. So the the answer is that every institution is going to have to examine, and, and this goes for commercial institutions, establishments as well, their situation and how they take the maximum precautions. It is not there is no 100% foolproof method, and the um, but the expenditure will will take a toll on the community, and and I hope uh, government leaders are are thinking about this as well. And NYPD created a new unit uh, this week to deal more with right wing, far right extremists and neo Nazis, according to the reports. It's a racially and ethnically ethnically motivated extremism. Uh, hopefully it'll deal with all sources of uh, hatred uh, and anti-Semitism. Uh, but the but they identified groups like Proud Boys and Adam Waffen and Oath Keepers who are more right-wingers, the three percenters. Uh, and the, the, we have seen the events around the country carried out by right-wing, but in this case it is not, nor is it a case of white supremacy, as Congresswoman Tlaib alleged in her outrageous uh, tweet, which she later uh, dropped, but did not issue another condemnation after that of those responsible uh, for the attack in Jersey City. It is pretty amazing how uh, those who are, uh, you know, the the, the, uh, perpetrators in this case, um, who who are not identifiably or really even politically uh, associated with any type of right-wing group, it's funny how all people speak about in the aftermath of this episode, is uh, right-wing anti-Semitism. And, and to, to the point, by the way, I don't even know if you um, you saw this, but uh, you know the executive director of the ADL um, decided this was a good time to condemn Fox News for it, for its rhetoric uh, in light of the uh, Jersey City episode. And that, I thought that was, re- even, I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to, you know, publicly say that there may not be legitimacy to what he's saying because, especially, he's not here to defend himself. But I thought it was pretty ill-timed. What do you think? I did not see it, so I can't comment on what he what was said. Um, I know that they've been very involved with the coverage of the issue um, of the developments in, New, in Jersey City. But overall, I think there is a point to, to and a recognition that has to become commonplace amongst people, that there's right-wing, left-wing, minority, Muslim, other sources, and that each one is serious and each one has to be addressed, and that it can't get caught in the political the, the political atmosphere and divisiveness and polarization and politicization of the time, that we have to look at Jew hatred for what it is, and we should anti-Semitism is, as you know, I believe, too, too antiseptic a term that was created, I think, to diminish the seriousness of Jew hatred, yep. and that there has to be clear uh, delineations. We have to see the IRA definition that the minimum applied, as, as we saw this week. We have to see uh, the commitment on the part of police. We have to see the judges hand out serious sentences for these crimes. We're seeing more of it in Europe, but Last week in Europe, we saw the exoneration uh, on the grounds of insanity of, the, of Mrs. Khalimi's killer, of a killer in, in the Netherlands. I mean, it's they're ridiculous. It's, it's uh, what is the message? So you go and kill a, a Jewish woman, throw her through a window, yell Quranic phrases, and then you claim insanity. Uh, and the we have to see to it that no more slaps on the wrist, that there has to be a real punishment for these crimes. 
they have to be taken seriously, hate crimes. Uh, I would say that elected officials across the board, you know, have spoken out and most have put resources and uh, some have created uh, task forces and other things to to, uh, coordinate the efforts and to underscore them. But the fact is that it has to go beyond statistic collection and beyond just speeches. It has to be a serious cross-the-board effort and, frankly, not by the Jewish community. We have to protect our institutions and communities, but... It has to be the rest of society, because Jews are the, not the perpetrators, we're the victims. Yeah. All right, here's the quote. I won't ask you to comment on it, because I suspect it would put you in an uncomfortable position, but here's the quote. Uh, the ADL's Jonathan Greenblatt, according to the Huffington Post, Mary Pappenfuss, said, quote, Sentiments being expressed on Fox, both subtle and blunt, contribute to anti-Semitism being normalized, in our society, and I found it ironic that they're being called out in light of what happened this week and who the perpetrators were. By the way, what do you know about the black Hebrews? What can you tell us about them and their anti-Semitism? Well, if you often can see them on the streets um, propagating their their hate message, uh, and this is uh, as has long been identified by the some uh, conference by um, by ADL by others as a, as a hate group and. Uh, they have members uh, in New York and New Jersey and other parts of the country. Um, it's not as well known as the other groups, uh, as, uh, let's say Farrakhan, because they don't have a singular leader that stands out. But it's a it's a hate group that um, that I hope will now be watched with greater uh, clarity. And you know the, the the fact that Fox was mentioned is there weren't was an incident on on Fox that was very troubling, as there is in the other media. And it's not that's why I'm saying that we can't get getting caught in right wing left wing we have to say that this is a disease it's a cancer it's a pandemic that crosses from europe from and around the world everywhere uh, the fact that you know uh, what happened in england if you look it's not just corbyn half the members of the labor party when when uh, polled exhibited anti-semitic attitudes yeah so it's got to be rooted out at everywhere um I assume you saw the video. Uh, I, I think it's an impromptu video of uh, residents of Jersey City speaking about the aftermath and the episode itself that happened. Uh, ironically, many of them blaming the Jews, uh, many black people blaming the Jews in an episode where blacks murdered Jews. Um, and, and the reason I bring this up, and I know the video, you know, we, we could talk about that video from a lot of different angles, you know, for a while, but the reason I bring it up is because I think it's vital. And you know my attitude when it comes to the future of the Jewish people. I always say it. It's in the state of Israel. But I think it's vital for people to understand. And it might only be ignorant people, but unfortunately there are a lot of ignorant people in this country and everywhere. Uh, I think it's important for people to understand the deep-rooted feelings that people, uh, that the average person might have toward Jews. And how uneducated people, and especially those who don't have regular good um, um, uh, interaction with Jews you know, draw their own conclusions and say some outrageous things. With that in mind, your reaction to their reaction to this episode. So the the thing that I think has exacerbated the problem, not created it, because I think it's always there, it's a cancer that, you know, can be more visible, less visible, is the Internet, which gives everybody, and especially young people, access to the most hateful messages and the the number of sites in the thousands, and you know, I think Facebook has seventeen hundred people monitoring 
the sites, and they can't root it out because they come and they, and I have seen this, uh, uh, how they, they manufacture them, and you have governments behind them like Iran, like Hamas, like um, uh, Palestinian Authority, others who are behind uh, the creation of a lot of these anti-Semitic websites, it's a lot of manipulation of of the reactions that you see sometimes, let's say when people, movie stars go to, to Israel and or performers and they get bombarded, a lot of that is manufactured. But the Internet gives them an anonymity and enables them to spread the hateful messages. It took Hitler months to spread a big lie. Today it's right. done in nanoseconds. Right. So this is a big change, and, and nobody has come up with a, a real solution uh, yet to this. That's why schools, that's why there has to be clear messages from religious leaders, from political leaders, from uh, entertainers, from everybody saying this is not acceptable. They have to identify with the Jewish people. They have to, you know, make it an unpopular thing that it's not cool to be an anti-Semite. You see in the schools... The, the Nazi salutes at different graduations and around the country are putting it up on a school, a swastika up on a school uh, lamp, uh, what do you call it, a flagpole. Um, it just, if you see every day the reports we see of how many incidents there are, how many uh, times that people, there are attacks. And and there's also the general climate that is, is disturbing. Malcolm, I need you to say it. I need you to say it to everybody, and everyone knows your family history in terms of the Shoah. I need you to say it that you know if it took Hitler a certain number of years to get from point A to point B, today, as you just described with the nanoseconds, today it, it is a much shorter route from one point to the next. And with that in mind, people really need to think about the collective Jewish future and the individual future of all Jewish families in this country and everywhere in the diaspora. Would you not think that's a, a, a good suggestion to make? I, I believe it. I think it. I say it. Um, again, I don't think that we should talk about Aliyah as a, an escape. I think it should be a positive gesture to fulfillment of a, of a Jew to live in Israel. Uh, uh, you know, we say, we don't want to see people go back because of tragedies and stuff. They're going back. Uh, it should be um, but, that the, we have to go standing up, upright, but, but we have to recognize that the that the future may well be there. That but, but, I think a lot but, of European Jews today realize but set aside, that the future set, yeah. is, not, is not in Europe. But at the same time, to recognize the amazing declaration this week by the president. But one second, I, one second, one second. We'll get to the president. But set aside Israel for a moment. Don't people have to recognize that, that as much as they think the United States is different, even different than France and Great Britain today, and much different than Germany in the 30s, isn't it important for people like us to remind everybody that every generation always thought that their homeland where they were was different. And even though there's a certain comfort level here in the United States, we have to keep in mind that there's been no exception when it comes to how these diasporas and diaspora in certain countries end. Yes. Okay. President of the United States, explain to us what he did and why it's so significant on the subject of anti-Semitism. I had a privilege to be there when he signed it at the uh, Hanukkah party, and uh, it's amazing how before it was even out, the media and certain elements criticized him and, again, politicized a move which the Senate passed unanimously and uh, and it failed on procedural grounds in the House that for two years the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act was being sought. So they... Uh, in the White House, several people, including Jared Kushner and Avi Berkowitz and others, worked 
to get the uh, get the president to sign an executive order, which he proudly did and spoke beautifully for people who see it online, that the um, it, to make it clear that Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 applies to discrimination against Jews as well. Many universities were saying it doesn't cover Jews. It covers racial groups, color groups, national origin. And this says to federal agencies, and especially Department of Education, to enforce Title VI protections to Jewish students, especially on campuses. And, and every agency is, is to examine its enforcement authority, see how it can best be leveraged to fight anti-Semitism. It does not declare it a nationality. It doesn't do some of the other things that, that people said and drawing comparisons to the 30s. And I mean, it just, uh, it's sometimes inconceivable that the, uh, and we've seen, you know, with the rise of anti-Semitism, this enables us and enables those who fight anti-Semitism, to, and especially kids on campus, to be able to go and hold universities to account. And they risk then their funding under uh, under this uh, as a result of this executive order. It's hard to believe that this wasn't in place beforehand. It, 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 for people like myself, I was surprised to hear that the that you know that that Jews were not in the you know did not have the full coverage let's say that other groups may have had in this well, regard. Th- there there have been actions uh, since in the last two years. The Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, I think, got eleven convictions in cases of attacks or threats against uh, places of worship and um, and some hate crimes against individuals because of their religious beliefs. And they're launching new efforts and new websites uh, for this. But it, it was a long uh, struggle, and there have been a number of individual cases on campuses that were important. But uh, this this sort of enshrines it in this in this legislation, then gives the Department of Education the vehicle to, to pursue the campuses where it's not and unfortunately, there are many campuses, including in New York City, where university administrations are not acting sufficiently against anti-Semitism, and uh, too often are in denial or or just disrespect of it. Meaning that they, it's not because they're hostile, but because they they either don't want to get involved, or they're afraid, or they they don't like the reaction, and they're you know, you, and the student groups that then sue them or or protest. Right. Um, it's it's uh, this this legislation. I think will help at least put the markers down. Even the uh, serious academic never Trumpers uh, acknowledge. I mean, I'm talking about the serious ones. Acknowledge what he's done for Israel and and the Jewish community at large. And and you're standing there at that party. I assume thinking the same thing that despite some of the things I'm sure you don't like about the president, like any president, uh, it is pretty remarkable the things that he's done for our community. And he, you know, he cataloged those a number of the steps that he's taken. But I will tell you something, and I think I mentioned this uh, to people you know, that um, we stood there, and there was the U.S. military band playing I Have a Little Dreidel. But, <laughs> and I said, what a great country, <laughs> you know, to see, uh, to see them playing Mosur and, and uh, the recognition of, of uh, the Jewish community. Yeah. And there has to be a karsatov. You can have whatever disagreements you, you may want, but yep. there has to be recognition when there is good done and to express appreciation for it by the way we, we need every tool in, in our kit now to fight anti-semitism by the way we were shocked about the timing of the party can we make hanukkah a three-week celebration would that be a good idea <laughs> we couldn't afford it <laughs> it's america's that's a very good point america's one and only Jew. he malcolm obviously knows about my donut and latka budget uh it's america's one and only jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network.
And, of course, in the beloved NSN app, Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. You know, my grandmother gave out Hanukkah gelt on only one night, Malcolm, only one night of Hanukkah. You know, now people think they get a gift every single night. And that was what you were alluding to with the, with the big budget if Hanukkah would be even longer. Um, and you know, by the way, did I ever tell you this? Did I ever tell you which night of Hanukkah it was that my grandmother gave gifts? Did I ever mention it? Is those Hanukkah? I don't know. Yeah, so most people guess either the 1st or the 8th, but in fact it was the 5th because it was the only night that could not be on Shabbos. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, very nice. Yeah. And it, and by the way, her yard site ended up being on the 5th night of Hanukkah. Boy, oh boy. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, I got plenty I'm of info. Sure in- there's a message there. Uh, yes, that's for sure. I got plenty of info for you on this one, Malcolm, let me tell you. Tell us about Great Britain in general. Uh, you mentioned, of course, the overwhelming victory in terms of the conservative side. Uh, vis-a-vis Israel, though, and it's interesting to watch uh, Israeli media, I think really from both political ends, you know, being pretty happy with the results of the election. Do you, do you foresee anything one way or the other in terms of the future of British-Israeli relations? I think it's a very positive. I can't even imagine what would have happened if Corbyn, God forbid, had gotten elected. And thank God he is leaving politics. Not soon enough, but he is leaving politics. Um, And, and, you know, he was personally accused of of more than a dozen incidents that people testified of his personal anti-Semitic actions, and that there were perhaps uh, hundreds and certainly maybe even thousands of the incidents reported to the Commission on Equality and whatever in in Great Britain about acts by within the Labour Party. Uh, scores of officials testified testified to that effect, meaning under oath to to the um, Equality and Human Rights uh, Commission about anti-Semitic incidents. So this is a very important message. Uh, and as you know, um, Netanyahu met with Johnson. It was going to Britain. He didn't, but they met with him, and they've been they've had a good relationship. Right. Uh, there's no lessons to be derived in terms of what will happen anywhere else, but it's a, it's a much better in- outcome for Israel, very important. And having a friend in Europe, where too often we see the anti-Israel bias still manifest uh, viciously. Yeah, no question about that. All right. Uh, the big story from um, uh, the other side of the world, though, with everything that's been going on, is obviously what's going to be happening on March the 2nd, of 2020 uh it is official now march the 2nd will be the date of the uh, next election in israel by the way i don't know if you heard this i heard a rumor well first i heard that the election was supposed to be march 10th and that ends up being purim so it had to be moved but then when they when they first proposed to move it a week later apparently that was the yard site of some great rebbe that everyone everyone that many people travel to outside of israel on that date and the Haredi parties were worried about losing a significant number of votes for whoever they would be backing, and therefore it ended up being uh, vetoed, and they moved the election back to March 2nd. Did you hear that? Did you hear that account? No. You didn't hear that? No. I, 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 it may be true. But yeah, I, I, I remember I, hearing it. Based on my sources, trust me, it's true, and I, I found that to be remarkable, frankly, but I guess it does tell you uh, about some of the influence that certain parties have when it comes to Israel uh, or Israeli politics. All right, so March 2nd. They've done it in the past when Labor Party, because their people traveled during the summer, that uh, elections were put off uh, to accommodate uh, the needs of different parties, so you maximize the vote. Right. They want as many people as possible to be in Israel. Simple as that. Absolutely. Um, All right, tell us about March 2nd. Uh, There's a deal on the table, at least according to some sources, that if Prime Prime Minister Netanyahu can exchange a pardon for resignation and that everyone, including Gantz and Lieberman, support that. Is Netanyahu's name going to be at the head of the Likud party, who have their 
primary, I believe, coming up in two weeks. Is his name going to be at the top of the party? Is it possible he'll leave politics now? What do you think in terms of who will be on the ballot March the 2nd? It will be March the 2nd, and we'll know. Uh, Gidon Sar clearly is mounting a, a challenge. There may be others. Um, there's a lot of speculation about behind-the-scenes discussions. Uh, people thought that it would work out, and as did I, that in the last minute they would come up with something, because they know the voters do not want this election. They're going to face the wrath of the voters, maybe disinterest in the voters. Uh, maybe Lieberman will pay a price. Others will. The rumor is that there was there wasn't even a back room conversation in the last forty eight hours. Nothing. It wasn't because they. I mean, they've had these negotiations now going on for months, as you know, and uh, there was probably very little to talk. But we saw already the internal divisions where Gantz said he won't have a rotation with Lapid this time. The um, uh, and we have to see whether different parties can unite. They they will face a very um, skeptical and uh, I think uh, challenging constituency because people are tired of it and I think Netanyahu obviously is the focus now because of legal problems because of BB fatigue as they call it because of all the other things and yet at the same time they all say he's the only guy who can lead the, the country he's probably not the only guy but he certainly has proven and has a record and and People, you know, look at that. So we'll have to see. And don't go by pollsters now. As we know, traditionally, it's not an indication, a valid indication of where things are at or will be at. Uh, And many people make the decision when they go into that uh, voting booth. First, we have to see if the Likud, if this is a successful maneuver or some internal arrangement. Uh, People say Netanyahu is just waiting to get immunity from prosecution or, or something. So what a shake-up that would be. Question marks uh, that will have to be addressed first. Could you imagine if he left this race? You know what kind of shake-up that would be? I don't think people realize. What, well, the what, rest of the Likud list would stay. And, yeah, I mean, would, I think you'd have a lot of internal tensions because there are different people who see themselves as possible but inheritors. But so many of the politically right-wing voters in Israel are just Bibi supporters. They they couldn't care less who else is around. They're just, I mean, you, you hear this from all these... Yeah, no. but, yeah but they have to make a choice. So it's, they either don't vote or they, they, they have to make a choice I if think they it do would, vote I think between it would. the parties and they have to make... See, it could be that people will move back towards the right-wing parties, the smaller ones. Right. There are a lot of ma- uh, possibilities, but this is all speculative now. And uh, and, and w- will there be a result that, I mean, I know you can't predict, but I'm just saying, is there any more likelihood of there being a result with a real government being formed compared to what happened in the first two elections? Is it possible? Uh, why, why would not it vastly different, but maybe enough that they that they create a coalition with the, um, or then Netanyahu steps away if he sees a poor result or that they, they form a coalition, a unity government, uh, to, to get to the 61 votes. It, it could be that blue and white picks up seats. It could be that the right will pick up seats as a collective block. It, it's all unpredictable. This is, it's, it's, uh, it's a long time away, and many things, look, they, they look at the region. It, given the, the threats that exist right now, we see the missile strength of Iran. We see them moving missiles into Iraq and into Syria. We see that the, along the Golan, uh, the, you know, any kind of, uh, of um, some sort of uh, match will can light this tinderbox uh, in the north and the south. Uh, that the the um, the challenges that Israel faces, that Iran's nuclear program is in, is advancing, that the uh, Europeans. Uh, you know, no matter what, at one hand, are are caught 
in their pro-JCPOA deal and, and talk about sanctions and talk about other things. And at the same time, they don't want to do it. They don't want to appear to give in to what the U.S. did. And they, of course, want to trade. So they're pushing Instex, which is uh, to, to bypass the American uh, ban on the, on their participation in SWIFT, the, the Iranian banks. Um, but at the same time, the, the Instex will come under U.S. sanctions. So they they better make you know look at this much more carefully, but we're really seeing very serious challenges within Iran that uh, are continuing to destabilize the situation. Meaning that the demonstrations go on, but nobody talks about it. There's a fight between the supreme leader, the Iran Revolutionary Guard, and Rouhani. There are real divisions. You see that they're all running to the religious leaders to get the brachot from them and to associate that that the uh, Palestinians are talking about going to an election, which also could have a lot of, um, uh, a lot of uh, implications, and, and members of the EU pushing for recognition of a Palestinian uh, state again. The, the, uh, the sanctions now being applied to Mahan Air and to Iran shipping. I mean, all the time, these new um, uh, sanctions. Iran is near economic collapse. And I talk to people inside the country, and we see what, what you know, the, how the popular uh, demonstrations are, are continuing. More than 1,000 people were killed. Where's the resolutions to the U.N.? And they outcry about yeah. it. This was much bigger than any of the demonstrations till now, since 79. And, and I don't think people appreciate how widespread the dissatisfaction is and the opportunities we have and why the West should be doing more to help the people inside Iran because that's the way that you can get real change. Uh, what about Erdogan in Turkey? Is this a challenge now uh, politically going to affect his uh, uh, power in that region? Well, he was challenged, as you know, in the elections in Istanbul, and uh, but 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 the um, the real movement with uh, Erdogan is his deal with Libya and the declaration of a joint. Maritime, the connection between Libya, which is 400 miles across the Mediterranean from Turkey, and they're claiming all of this jointly as their zone, which means that it it will prevent Israel from building the pipeline to Greece. It means that they were they are challenging the Cypri- uh, Greek Cypriot uh, claims and an economic um, um, zone that it has a broad implications. It could lead to an all-out conflict. I mean, this is very serious. And we know that they've shipped weapons into northern Cyprus to the Turkish half of, uh, of the island and, um, and now are applying for recognition from the U.N., from the agencies that have to recognize this, uh, this new arrangement that they worked out, which obviously I think the Europeans and Israel, the Greeks, the Cy- Cypriots, everybody will oppose strongly Egypt as well, by the way, because it interferes with their... Uh, economic zone, uh, which is the the distance that they claim from their border as their territorial waters. So here they're claiming as territorial waters the whole Mediterranean across from Libya, which means that they can't, you can't explore. This is exploitation, not exploration on their part. They are drilling now in areas that are claimed by Cyprus. So it's a very delicate situation. You have another one in the negotiation between Sudan, Egypt, Ethiopia over the dam there or on the Nile, which also could become a conflict situation. There are efforts to negotiate, and there's a meeting coming up soon. 
uh, hopefully that that can be resolved. But the, the Turkey is becoming more and more aggressive along the lines of, of Iran, and we see it around the world, but this is the most blatant example now. And it's funny because you forget sometimes just how many countries and leaders of those countries want to be number one in the Middle East. And that whole effort, you know, depending on who's positioning, you know, and, and the way they're doing it, you know, it's something so vital to keep in mind. And we talk about Israel's future and, and the, the countries around them, you know, uh, one of the keys to the future of the entire region is, is going to be who's going to be more effective in trying to control the entire Middle East, or at least in the effort to control the entire Middle East. And obviously Turkey and Iran are, are, are perfect examples of that. And that's why the countries have to unite. You saw the, the chief rabbi of Jerusalem was in Bahrain, right. met with the king, was received in a Muslim conference. I was with him in Baku, where we both addressed the World Muslim Leader Conference. Um, this time nobody walked out when I spoke, or he spoke, and he was introduced as chief rabbi of Quds, and the Turks were there, the Iranians were there. Nobody walked out. Um, and because they saw that the rest of the crowd w- was sitting there and applauded, and um, the, the the so there are, it's not all negative, but there are real challenges to to virtually every government. You see it in Jordan. You see the others that almost everybody is today facing very serious um, challenges. In in um, I don't think there's a single country that isn't today. And we see Hezbollah the build up the new missiles, the equipment that Iran is sending in to to Iraq and short range missiles that threaten U.S. bases in in Saudi Arabia. It threatens Israel. Threatens um, all of our troops everywhere in Syria, and they boast about the fact that they're the first fourth biggest missile power and that they could rain hundreds of thousands of missiles from Hezbollah, Gaza, from uh, Iraq. The Iraqi people don't like it. They're protesting. They're saying, don't use our grounds. And they had to send in leaders of the IRGC. It's not helping. There's still strong <coughs> public uh, expressions against Iran, both in in Lebanon and in, in Iraq over the last few days. In Lebanon, uh, leaders said that um, the threat by uh, the IRG, the Hezbollah leaders that would Iranian-backed that w- they would attack Israel from Lebanon, and they're saying, "Oh no, you're not," and you, and called it ridiculous. Very strong language in condemning what they said. So it's very. It, there are, are a lot of things happening. It doesn't get any press because everybody's so absorbed with the, what's going on in Congress. Um, uh, these are very serious issues and require. A, a unified stand, and also for Israel to be to be able to be focused on these security issues. Yeah, and without a <laughs> without anybody at the helm, it's also a problem. That's why I, I still say the president of Israel, uh, in light of what's going to be happening March second, has no choice if there's another deadlock but to put his foot down and insist that you know nobody leaves this room until there's a deal. I mean, could you imagine if they went to a fourth election? I mean, th- this is no, got, I can't imagine. It. Th- this has, right. this and, has got to be it. Yeah. And he and by the way, this is a little bit. A little bit of a uh, a criticism of his leadership because I don't know if that shouldn't have been done in this case. He did try. He did. He convened the parties. He brought them together. He tried until the end. Uh, uh, he, he did it quietly sometimes, but he did it publicly, and he publicly called for a, a unity government. He publicly called the parties together. He had Netanyahu and Gantz in his office several times. There were pictures of them together there. But he can't force it. Yeah, I guess not. Except, again, for that strategy. No one leaves the room till there's a deal. Uh, Malcolm, I know you're in a rush. I thank you for your time. We'll speak again next week, Bezrat Hashem. Have a good Shabbos. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations.